0: or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome to another episode of Everything Is Personal. Today, I have a very special guest, a dear friend, Dr. Jennifer Anderson, who's a physician and a cannabinoid specialist. And We've been trying to do this for a while, so I really thank you for your time. I know you're super busy and grateful to have you on.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Well, so where are you joining us from?
2: I'm joining you from Winnipeg, Manitoba, which is right in the middle of Canada, right above North Dakota.
1: It's pretty cold there, right?
2: It does. Although right now it's in Celsius, it's plus 40 today.
1: Oh, it's hot. Wow. Yeah. So, Joe, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up here in Winnipeg. Um, I grew up, actually, a, that's a whole different story in itself. I'm not sure how much you want me to go into, but... Um, go
1: into it. I, I want to learn. Yeah, I want to learn more about you because we were talking previous uh, to this about you know, you get on these, you get on the circuit of uh, interviews, right? So I I do podcasts and I I do talks, but it's like, it's an interesting story because we both know Dr. Ethan Russo. So one time I walked up to uh, uh, Ethan at an event, I think we were speaking at, and I was talking to him and I was asking him about his experience with cannabis. And he's like, Nobody ever asked me about my. They're only want to get my advice for them. Nobody asked. So I'm like, you know what? Let's start talking about people as, as people instead of them just, uh, you know, talking heads about this is how I practice medicine. This is what I do, uh, you know, CBD, et cetera. So let, let's learn about Jen.
2: Absolutely. I don't think that my actual story has really been shared at all, actually. And it's very, um, it's very personal. Um, I actually grew up on welfare with a single mom um, in government housing and, you know, growing up, I never realized how much that would influence my, my career or what I did with my life. And as a physician, when I look back, I think that um, that experience colors everything that I do Um, as much as my story with my son has colored how I practice as a physician my growing up makes me connect with my patients in a completely different way and i'm actually super proud of that
1: no it's that's it's an amazing story and i usually well, I, you know i sort of have a, a similar story because uh, we immigrated from another country my parents had like 500 hours in their pocket uh my dad was uh, you know master's degree engineer and they had to take these odd jobs to get by and we, we lived in some uh, interesting places and all that so I think, you know, having that background really develops some empathy and uh, in in dealing with with people in general, and then also having the motivation not to end up in that place yourself and make sure that your kids don't end up with that. So, yeah, I I definitely can relate to that. So in your childhood, are, are you, do you have any siblings?
2: I do have step-siblings. So both my mom and my dad had uh, kids after me. And so each side is step-siblings. So I I grew up with my mom until I was uh, in my early teens and then she got married. But uh, during that time, you know, as it sort of relates to cannabis, um, you know, I grew up around drugs, You know, it was, I didn't even know cannabis was illegal because everybody had it. Right. And this is way back in the eighties in Canada. Um, you know, my best friend, her mom, uh, died of a heroin overdose. She came home from school and found her dead. Like that was my kind of my circle, you know, and, and from a day to day, um, just day to day, there was just drugs and alcohol everywhere. Um, I grew up around a lot of uh, people that were just on social assistance, um, and you know, fortunately, you know, I was sponsored into a small private school, and you know, I never really knew what the value of that would be, but I think that really put people in my life who were other mentors and and sort of parented me um, cause it was a very small group. Um, and, and they really helped me see other things. I got to go places. I got to even like to Mexico, we went on a mission trip and things. Right. And so I got to mm-hmm. see the world and I got to see the world outside of my circle, uh, that I was growing up in.
1: So when, when your mom got remarried, uh, how was your relationship with your stepfather? And then you all automatically got step siblings, uh, immediately. How did, how did that work out?
2: Um, So my mom actually had kids after uh, she got married. So I was, I believe, 12, I want to say. I mean, I have, I'm 41 now and (laughs) my sister just turned 23. So I do have three siblings that are much younger. Um, My stepdad is amazing. Um, He's always been super supportive. Um, You know, I, uh, both my dad and my stepdad, I'm very close with. So it's turned out very great. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, when did you realize you wanted to be a doctor?
2: I knew I wanted to do something in healthcare. I think when I was in grade eight or nine, when you start learning about biology and the human body, I remember learning about the heart and thinking right at that very time, oh man, if I could do a job that revolved around, you know, um, physiology or anatomy, just. I was super interested. I was one of those kids who went to the the bookstore and bought the anatomy coloring book, and I would night I would color the book and memorize <laughs> the bones and different things. You know, I, it was kind of geeky, but I liked it. You know, and so I didn't really know what I wanted to do. I babysat for a family where the mom was an emergency nurse. And so she brought me with her to work on Bring Your Kids a Work Day. Um, and I found that was super helpful because I got to see things I wouldn't have otherwise seen. Um, and then, you know, that ended up uh, making me very interested in healthcare. I actually initially went into nursing, um, but, you know, the program just wasn't really what I thought it was going to be. And I was sort of looking at, um, you know, Diseases and how to treat them, and I was really interested in physiology and pharmacology, and and that wasn't really what the focus was in year three and four. So I ended up dropping out of nursing. <laughs> I always joke that I'm a nursing dropout. And <laughs> then I just I ended up finishing up a science degree in microbiology and uh, zoology, mm-hmm. and then I ended up um, applying into medicine. Um, and then the rest is, I guess, history. <laughs>
1: So zoology. What, what, did you have thoughts of being a veterinarian at, at some point?
2: Um, I definitely crossed my mind. I think the all the courses that were the physiology courses and that actually just fell under the zoology. Um, so that's sort of where that came from. Um, yeah.
1: So and then uh, you went to school and uh, you got married and uh, had kids right? Uh, do I have that timeline? Absolutely.
2: Correct? Yes. Yes. So I did my, undergrad. <laughs> or is it to have
1: kids and they get married? I, I wasn't sure. <laughs> no, I
2: actually got married when I was 19. Um, you know, my family actually moved out of Winnipeg and I was kind of on my own, met somebody, you know, decided that first, you know, to get married at that time, um, ended up doing my undergrad. And then I had my daughter and I did med school. And then in residency, I ended up getting pregnant with twins. And so um, I sort of did everything at the same time.
1: Well, that's, uh, that's a lot of work. I'm sure that took a, a toll on, first of all, that's a lot of work in general in a marriage, like, you know, being married and being divorced and understanding what it is to take care of, you know, having a kid and uh, you having uh, one daughter and then having twins. And then you discovered that something was off with uh, your son or like, if you can describe that experience a little bit.
2: Yeah. So when I was pregnant with the boys, um, I was in my first year of family medicine residency and ended up just getting really big, really fast. And it's a kind of a long story, but um, at 20 weeks, I had a fetal assessment that showed that I was stage three of twin-twin transfusion syndrome, which basically means identical twins. They share a placenta and the blood was all being shunted to one of them. And the other one was basically almost dead. So at that day, they basically gave me the choice to terminate the pregnancy. Um, or to um leave it and they probably one would die and the other one would probably have a stroke um, you know, when the other one died, just because of the blood um pressure difference uh when the one died. Or I could fly to Toronto the next day and do a cutting edge procedure um, where they actually um do intrauterine surgery and they use a laser to um, burn all of the blood vessels that cross um, the placenta. So to try to divide the twins basically um, from the blood work um, perspective, uh, blood vessel perspective. So um, we decided to go the next day. We went back to the hospital, both twins were alive. So we hopped on a plane and then we were in Toronto with Dr. Greg Ryan, who was amazing. And he basically saw us that night. And the next morning I was in surgery with him. Uh, they did the surgery, and they were actually pretty amazed that Nicholas made it through. Um, they thought that the blood supply was so little that he would just pass away in the procedure. And so, um, within 24 hours, he was making urine, and because before that he had no fluid around him at all. Um, and so, all of a sudden, there was fluid around him, and things were looking, you know, much better. Um, you know, we did go through uh, ultra. Uh, fetal assessments every week, um, to see how they were doing. They thought everything was fine. Um, you know, there was no evidence of any, um, complications from the surgery. Um, I did have them at like 34 weeks, um, 33, 34 weeks. Um, just the blood flow started to reverse to Nicholas again. And so just on that day, they just decided to take the babies out. They were in through in the NICU for three months almost. Um, and at, 40 weeks of when they would have been 40 weeks. Um, they did an MRI of both of them. Um, and Nicholas basically showed that his whole brain developed abnormally. So they called us saying at 6 PM at night. Um, remember we'd been in the NICU with Nicholas for, you know, six to eight weeks already. And um, you know, all of a sudden we have this MRI and we've already been there all day. And they call us back that night and they're like, Oh, by the way, Nicholas will probably have nothing but reflexes, um, you know, because his whole brain's abnormal. Um, You know, that whole situation is, you know, stands out in my mind as what not to do, um, you know, from a physician perspective. But at that very time, I started asking questions and I asked questions of the neurologist, you know, okay, are we going to start OT, PT, you know, knowing that the brain is so plastic at that stage that, you know, we just need to start doing what we can. And then I'll never forget the neurologist said to me, she was, well, actually, you know what research supports that because they weren't actually going to do anything until six to eight months. And so it was just because I asked and like put my foot down at the beginning that all of a sudden that door opened. And I just found that with this whole process, I mean, I had to be my own son's advocate, you know, um, and, and, you know, whether we're talking about early on all the way through to cannabis, you know. I feel like if I wasn't a doctor, or I didn't have some sort of knowledge, my my son would be dead. Really, you know, he would not be here.
1: Uh, it's such an excellent point because I think people put doctors in this pedestal, which they should at some point. But like they know everything, and they don't because certain doctors have a specialty in something, and. We need to have a more collaborative uh, sort of experience with our healthcare prof- professionals, anyway. And I, I think what you just mentioned is a really, really good lesson for just in general for people to engage with their healthcare professionals in a different way. Ask those questions, push them, and if you don't like it, you know, do your own due diligence. Bring other people in because, especially in the U.S., like. I was just in a doctor's appointment with my daughter. She had to go get a referral for an OB. And I mean, the experience was was very cold. It was a 15-minute visit. And it was just like old school. Let me listen to your heart. Let me, you know, breathe, call, you know, all that. All that can let me feel your lymph nodes. It didn't seem like it was progressive for 2022. Like, but... Part of me in the U.S. understands that there is insurance, you know, if you're a 15-minute visit, you'll get reimbursed this much. If you're a 30-minute visit, you'll get reimbursed. It's an hour. Oh, man. So we have this weird system in the U.S. that incentivizes people to move quickly uh, through the system because, you know, doctors have to pay their bills, too. I I understand that, but definitely something has to change and maybe... In a more integrative type of medicine uh, will be that future approach with real, real diagnostic and trying to address people in a different way. But, but let me go, go back to because I'm trying to put myself into the place that you're in. And I understand there's a tremendous amount of stress already just having just given birth as stressful as it is. And you don't know what to do. It's a new baby. Like I remember mine came out with like a triangle head and I was like <laughs> freaking out. I was like, what the hell is this? She's got a triangle head. And they're like, no, it's normal. It goes back. I'm like, no, you got the little beanie. And I always make fun of her. I'm like, you know, you were born with a triangle head and because they, they had this beanie and it was like a triangle thing. So it's stressful and you don't know, you don't want to break them and all that stuff. But you going through this experience I mean, I can I can empath- uh, emphasize with that, but it, it puts a strain on to first. So you, you have another kid and then another kid and then you have three and puts a strain on the relationship, not only with the other children, but also, you, you know, with your significant other. So how was that a? Did, or sometimes it brings people closer together. I don't know. I've heard both stories, but how how is that experience if you can sort of think back to that time?
2: It was pretty traumatic. Um, you know, I, I, think throughout my pregnancy, you know, prior to that, what had happened was my initial ultrasound had said that I was having fraternal twins. So, um, you know, I went to my obstetrician and I, I mean, the context of the first ultrasound was that I was having first trimester bleeding. Um, so I was in emergency, they ordered the ultrasound for bleeding And, you know, the ultrasound report happened to mention that I was a die die pregnancy, meaning paternal twins. So, um, I that was at seven, eight weeks. I went to my obstetrician and I said, Well, I said, like, we didn't ask the clinical question, you know, what is the chorionicity of the twins? Um, it was done for a completely different reason. So, should we do another ultrasound to double check? And she said, No, no, don't worry. You don't need to worry about twin twin transfusion syndrome. And so, I wasn't super happy with that answer, but anyways, we ended up, you know, carrying on and I went to my doctor. I'm like, I'm getting really big. I'm not trying to like complain, but my daughter, when she bumps me, it hurts so bad, you know? And then like within two weeks of that, I was diagnosed with twin twin had surgery. Then all of a sudden I have the babies and then I have All of a sudden, you know, the big news that Nicholas is all abnormal and that he'll probably never have anything but reflexes. And, you know, my world just came crumbling down. Like I was an absolute mess. Um, You know, I I didn't have a great marriage. I will be, you know, be pretty blunt about that, but this did not make it any better. Um, Fortunately, my ex's um, now ex's uh, aunt, she really helped us out. She, Um, came and helped, you know, look after the babies uh, in the NICU almost every day because I had so much uh, difficulty even going there after we found out about Nicholas. I was so angry, Um, you know, and I I often think about how much that meant um, and how much she did because that enabled me to sort of go through my grief and actually come back to the table and look after Nicholas. And so, you know, I have since then even thanked her for that because, um, yeah, it went a long way, but, uh, you know, we ended up uh, working with Nicholas. Um, you know, I ended up getting uh, divorced not too long after, just as you mentioned things, just, if you already have a rocky marriage, something like that just completely blows it apart. So, um, yeah. So then I've been single parenting since 2015.
1: (laughs) I understand that uh, for sure. Was there any family history of, first of all, was there any family history of twins in either one of your uh, families?
2: Not at all. No. And actually, identical twins are not sort of uh, genetic. They are just, you know, an egg that happens to split. So, yep. <laughs> yeah.
1: Exactly. So, and okay. So, there was no, no family history of this. I find it interesting. They use the word, medically fragile, to describe Nicholas, um, when you started realizing, you said that, you know, they would just have reflexes and all that stuff. When, at what point did you realize that it's, yes, I, I really like that terminology, medically fragile. I, I don't think I've ever heard that before, but at what point did you realize that it was more than just reflexes and there's something here that, you know, maybe that's a pattern, but something you can work uh, with and, and start to diagnose what really is going on.
2: Well, I mean, as you are aware, like when you're, when you have a baby, there's not a whole lot of things that you can, uh, that is outside of reflexes. I mean, whether it be eating or, you know, lots of the th- the things that they do are reflexes. So as Nicholas got older, And, you know, we're talking, started, um, you know, hitting some milestones, you know, they were delayed compared to his brother, you know, for example, he didn't um, roll over as soon, he didn't sit as soon. But, you know, we started to see that there were things that there was more than just reflexes. And I think a huge learning uh, opportunity there, especially when I talk to residents and med students, because I I teach in the faculty, is that you never look at a brain and know the outcome, right? Like the the MRI, uh, the CT, that's a, a picture of the brain, you know, gives you maybe an idea of, of what parts of the brain are affected, but you can never ever say that means that the child is gonna not do this or do this, right? So, and I feel like a lot of the families that I work with, you know, they they don't know that. And, and knowing that makes them, gives them so much hope because you can work with these kids and you can, they can, do things usually that they never expected because because you've given them the opportunity um, instead of just assuming they can't do anything. Um, so with Nicholas, we just pushed everything, um, you know, and he ended up walking late. Um, he never, ever uh, was able to talk. Um, he had a lot of difficulty eating. So we started noticing that the parts of his brain that were most affected were the parts that were controlled with eating. And then he started having seizures. Um, he actually started having seizures really early on. But, you know, another frustrating thing was that it wasn't picked up. And, you know, I, I would go back to the neurologist and say, I think he's having seizures. I think because this was something that we could potentially expect, you know, he would go to bed and he'd be getting up at the same times at every night vomiting um, and shaking, vomiting. Um, you know, and I finally I was in Emerge one night and I was looking up like night seizures and things. And I found something called electrical e- uh, status epilepsy and sleep. And I actually went to the doctor. I'm like, is this something that he has? Oh, no, no. You know, I asked for some lorazepam because we were going to go to Florida. And I said, like, you know, I don't want to end up in a, in a hospital in Florida. I'm I'm pretty sure he's having seizures. Anyways, and this is when he was three. Um, and the neurologist says to me, she goes, Jen, I have never diagnosed him with seizures. These are not seizures. And so I'm like, fine. And at that point, I remember thinking, I'm just a stupid family doctor. Um, like, what do I know? Uh, I'm just, you know, everyone just made me feel like I was so, um, you know, dramatic or I was so like overly concerned. Right. And I, I didn't know anything. I was just reacting. So then I thought, well, maybe you're right. Maybe you're totally right. Maybe I'm just, you know, hyper aware. Right. So I went to Florida for a whole week he was up all night just vomiting and shaking and you know it would stop as, as fast as it started. And so we got back and I called neurology again. I'm like, there's something wrong. And so finally they did a five day home EEG and wouldn't you believe they called us back and said, Oh, by the way, your son has something called electrical status epilepsy in sleep. We need to start him on seizure medications. And I said Oh, really? (laughs) Okay. And then I asked if we could be referred to an epileptologist, which is actually a neurologist that uh, specializes in seizures, because I had reached out to the doctor moms uh, on a social board and I had told them how frustrated I was. And they had given me that idea. I didn't even know that existed. So then I asked my neurologist and she said, Oh, actually there's one just right next door. Sure. (laughs) So like three months later, we end up seeing this neurologist, uh, that, uh, the seizure specialist and our appointment was like an hour late. We were the first one of the day. And when we got in the room, he looked at us and he said, I've been looking at your records for the, over the, the whole time that you guys have been saying that Nicholas is having seizures. And he said, based on the MRI, the MRIs, Everything you're saying lines up with him having seizures and different seizures, like vomiting seizures um, and, and different things that I'd never heard of. So he basically told us that we were right all the time and he wasn't even on an appropriate dose of the medications, like the seizure medications for the ESES. And so he put Nicholas onto a higher dose of them and Nicholas's events just completely settled and he was doing really good. Um, and it, it was life-changing. Um, but then over the course of, um, so that was in 2015, that was right before we split up. Um, so spring of 2015, fall of 2015, we split up Nicholas over that year, just deteriorated until spring of 2016 when we were in the hospital all the time. And I was trying to work. Remember, I'm a single mom now, trying to work clinic, trying to work ER. I was delivering babies as well. I worked it rurally and working emerge. Um, And I had a respite person who was working more and more. She'd like moved in with me um, to help out. And she was a lifesaver. And, you know, it got to the point where we were just in hospital all the time and I couldn't work. And Nicholas, um, his lungs were so bad at that time because he'd been vomiting and aspirating every time. And because you just physically couldn't reach him in time when he'd start vomiting at night to flip him over um, because he still wasn't able because he has cerebral palsy, um, you know, and the way that affects him is uh, his upper extremities um, and it's always created motor issues for him. So he couldn't just flip himself over if he was vomiting. So then he ended up on breath stacking masks, like a cold would send them into ICU on BiPAP. And so that's, that was our summer of 2016. And, um, he went home, we canceled, we couldn't even go to the lake, which was like an hour away because we did go once and we were, and en- we ended up almost having to call an ambulance and an air ambulance to try and lift him to children's, um, you know, and so we just stayed home. And, and by that time you couldn't even tell if he was seizing or not, he was staring off. Um, he'd be shaking at times. He was having at least two to three seizures an hour. Um, and we couldn't really tell when they were starting <laughs> or stopping um and then you know we went in for an appointment and our new neurologist who's wonderful Dr. Marin <laughs> she um she's the only one that I will like name because she's been fantastic she um she said you know do you want him resuscitated because we were just having lorazepam like candy because and just heading to the hospital all the time if we weren't there already and they'd load him with whatever um and send him home um and at that moment, I realized that I was working like a dog trying, you know, in clinic and ER and hospital. And remember, I'd only graduated two years before, like I just started my practice and I was trying to pay the bills. Um, and I, I realized I looked at my kid and thought I can't work when my kid is essentially dying. So I went to the owner of the clinic uh, or, and I just quit. (laughs) So I can't, I can't work. So I had two weeks to close my practice. And on my, I had a personal blog, um, you know, just from the twins and the surgery and all that kind of stuff. And I put a little post on there saying that I was really interested in trying cannabis um, because at that time I had seen the Charlotte Biggie story. Um, And I talked to my neurologist who said basically that, you know, she thought she trained in in the States and in some of the centers that were running the Epidiolex trials. And she said, I think it could work, but I can't help you. You need to find someone who can. And usually it's family doctors because they're you know, more flexible, but she couldn't even help me find one. Um, and so I put on, on my uh, social blog that I really wanted to try something. And one of my like, old time friends from when I grew up, she messaged me and she said, I have some Charlotte's Web. Do you want to try it? Like It's not working for my son. She tried it uh, for something else. And so that Friday night, I went to her house, paid like 200 bucks for the Canadian, right? For this little bottle of Charlotte. That's West. like $5
1: hours US, I think, right?
2: Probably, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, still, I still have to order it. I have an exemption from Health Canada. And it goes from like, I don't even know, 700 US to 1100 Canadian. Um, but yeah, I, I gave him one drop that night. I didn't even think it was going to work. And I mean, the first night, he just slept the whole night, one drop. He was, he was little, I don't even know, 20 pounds or something, but um, yeah. And then the next day he, you know, he had seizures in the day and you've probably heard the story. I've shared it often, but over that weekend he slept every night and by the Monday he was a different kid. And, and then of course, yeah, that's the the next part of the story really. Well,
1: Well, so, you know, this is early on and, you know, this is prior to Canada being legal and all that was there a stigma associated with like, I guess it's a twofold question within your entire family first and then outside being a doctor and administering, you know, the evil cannabis, even though it's only CBD, but I think the knowledge was really limited at that time. Did you have any stigma associated with the, with you doing this?
2: I did definitely uh, within my physician colleagues and my friends. um, My, personal family, like my mom and my stepdad, I think that they were a little bit, you know, on the fence about it grew up in a real good Pentecostal family, you know, (laughs) didn't touch anything, (laughs) drugs or alcohol, but, um, you know, I think they really were open-minded at that point. They knew that Nicholas didn't have much, um, there was no options. Um, and so they thankfully were, uh, pretty open-minded. Um, I did have a lot of family that sort of, um, decided you know, divorce breaks up family. So some of my personal, you know, aunts and uncles, who decided that they wouldn't want anything to do with me. And so, um, you know, I, I lost a lot. I, I did a lot on my own. I was really, really isolated at that time, um, which was good because I could just do what I felt was right. I didn't feel like I had to answer to anybody. I was just living day to day, trying to keep my son alive.
1: Yeah, I... <sighs> It's interesting that you said the the divorce uh, uh, kind of separates families in different ways. You don't you don't see it. I have I used to do uh, I used to run this group called Rebuilding Your Life After Divorce, and uh, I did it for four years. And was sort of my therapy going through my divorce. And it was so interesting how people they really really would get upset because their friends like it was it was a a couple that was friends because you were married, the couple friends, but now they took the other spouse, the ex's side, and you're no longer friends. And they used to upset people so much. I'm like, yeah, when you get divorced, you you sort of separate not only your finances and stuff, but you separate friends and you separate families and people take different sides. And, you know, time goes by and maybe some people come back or maybe you don't want these people in your life to begin with. So, it was an interesting lesson learned. Um, I wanted to talk about the Anything Can Happen documentary. How did that come about? And I, and I want to dive deeper into uh, some of the other questions I had, but I, I just wanted to uh, talk about that and lead that to some other questions that I had.
2: Absolutely. So um, just to condense things a little bit, um, in, I think it was 2017, you know, I got asked to help out in this cannabis clinic because all these kids were coming with epilepsy and nobody would help them, not even the cannabis docs. And so, um, you know, I started helping them. And over the course of the next few years, me and the girls at the clinic, we were just blown away by the stories. I mean, we would literally sit around after clinic and just, I mean, we would cry with the families. We would like, it was just a family, even all of the families that came in, it was just the most amazing experience. And So, um, one of the, the managers of the clinic, uh, we were chatting and I said like, these kids stories have to be told, uh, you know, like it would, it would do such a big thing to just share them. I mean, we're seeing lives changed every day. And so she happened to have a friend who, um, you know, worked in the news industry and was starting his own little sort of production company on the side. And so she introduced me to him. His name is Chase Guthrow and we went out for beers and I, I didn't really know what was going to come of it. I told him about my son and my practice at the time and what we were doing and all the amazing things we were seeing. And I didn't think much of it. And then I, I we went our separate ways and he came back to me and he actually had uh, independent funders that were willing to um, put up money to do a documentary. And personally, he had actually worked as a respite person. And I really, really loved his character. I felt like he could tell our story really well, and it wasn't going to just be taken and made into something. It wasn't. And so um, that a few months later, he actually, him and uh, another producer, they came to our cabin. They did a bunch of filming um, and that's how we got most of the footage and then COVID happened. And then we ended up having this to, to, um, finish it up after COVID. So it was supposed to be a lot bigger than it was, but at the end of the day, we got, uh, most of our story and three other stories. Um, and he did such a beautiful job of putting it all together. Um, yeah, I'm very excited for people to see it.
1: So if anybody's listening in Hollywood, uh, Please reach out to uh, Jen to uh, get this uh, get this wonderful film that needs to be seen out so many more people see it because it's it's definitely a story like we we know about Charlotte and you just mentioned but people need to understand that I think there's a lot of you know there's videos of uh, there's a video that goes around uh, social media with this uh, the gentleman has Parkinson's and he's. You know he's got shaking really bad, and he consumes can, uh, cannabis, and and he stops. Like people need to really see the visual. We can talk about it all day, and there's trials and there's research, but I think when you see it firsthand, I, I think it's an extremely effective tool to let people, uh, you know, really connect to the the journey that you're actually going through. Absolutely,
2: um, I actually think that this is very a, a unique story, in that it's a physician. So I'm having to struggle with, with cannabis and my child and what I've been taught and a child that's dying and trying to put the two together, you know, essentially I have to choose my child over my career, which actually ends up doing okay um, in terms of, you know, my career, but it could have completely destroyed me, Um, you know, and that's a really hard place to be. And I think coming from that perspective, you know, you talked about how, you um, had this this group, and that was therapy for you. What I noticed was that working with these families was therapy for me. It helped me get through my struggles, but then I realized that I was doing the same for these families. They all knew my story. They knew I was in the same boat as them, and we were just all working together to help our kids, um, and that's the difference with this documentary.
1: Yeah, and I, you, exactly right, and and it's a very unique story, but also... It allowed you had to come out of your closet, it's, so to speak, because either you're all in, you can't. It's very hard to dabble if you're if you're going to go into cannabis and be, you know, a doctor that actually recommends cannabis and and works with people who who need it. Uh, the <laughs> Some of the people in the, in the community may be looking at you and 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 pointing a finger. That's the cannabis doctor. You know they're they're kind of hokey and all that stuff. So being able to come out of the closet, and especially now having having the movie about it, there's no going back in. When did you make this? When did you make this sort of decision that I am all in?
2: It was I. It was a very definite uh, time period. I believe it was 2018. It was, I was helping this one child um, with glioblastoma and I'm not sure if you've heard this story before, but it was one of those stories that showed me that as a physician, I have a lot of power and I have a lot of influence. And if you try to use it for something positive, that it can actually make a difference. And so I had this child who had glioblastoma is the first time I ever helped a, a kid with cancer. Um, I had no clue what I was doing. I reached out to Bonnie Goldstein and bless her heart. She helped me with this one. And I just decided, you know what, I'm going to help this child. And we're just all in right on this, on this one. And I I was still kind of keeping to myself, not really making it public with my physician friends that I was helping these kids. And then, uh, they came back and they were going to go on their dream trip. That was in one of the European uh, countries. And, um, I said, well, you can't take your cannabis out of Canada. And we had this child on high dose THC and CBD and we'd just gotten him up there. Right. And he was doing really well. And like within a month they were going to go on their trip and the family, I don't, I mean, they're so traumatized. You have to understand these families, they don't even know what's up and down. They've got this kid cancer, nine month life expectancy, like everything thrown at them. They don't remember anything. And so I just felt horrible Uh, But I knew that this child, if he went off of cannabis, I didn't know what was going to happen. Maybe the tumor would just explode. I didn't know how much the THC and the CBD was really helping this cancer stay at bay. And so I started just reaching out. I reached out to Health Canada, um, you know, and just called and called, sent emails. Finally, I got an email back saying, you know, if you can get the other country to agree, um, you know, to allow them in with cannabis, then we will issue an exemption. And so I called the European embassy and they put me in touch with the, the, I guess the embassy where this, I don't want to name places, but where this child was going. And I called and they're like, oh, you need to talk to the governor. And I, I got on the phone and I just put it all out there. Hi, I'm a Canadian physician. I have a child with with uh, palliative cancer that's coming to your country, you know, on his dream trip. It's exa- It's the last trip he'll ever um, go on and and the family And he's doing amazing on cannabis. He's on high doses. It's helping, you know, but he has to stop it to come to your country and he might die. Like, I'm just like very, you know, this is what's gonna happen. You don't want him to die in your country. You know, I am asking for an exemption. And he literally, he was like, Oh my gosh, yeah, this is so important. Can I put you on with the health minister? So before I know it, I'm on with the health minister. And within a week, like I sent them every document, like my My science degree, my medicine degree, my residency degree, everything. And, um, you know, I was leaving actually to go out to see some of our mutual friends in uh, BC. It was a Friday afternoon and I emailed both Canada and this country. And I said, I am getting on a plane. I need you guys to talk and issue this exemption because this child's leaving in the morning. You know, and by the time I landed in BC, I got an email from them issuing like a complete um pass for them to go. And it was the first time in my that I've been told it's ever happened and it was that experience that showed me that, you know, you can the people actually want to help. Um, you know, people will listen and, you know, when when they're dealing with children, you know, people people will listen, you know, and you can change things as a physician. So when you ask me when when Specifically, I was all in. It was after that experience. I I remember thinking, I am all in. This is what I do now. Like, there's no going back.
1: Yeah, I re- I remember you you telling uh, the story. To, I think we were with Chris Spooner uh, at the time, Dr. Uh, Chris Spooner as well. So I remember uh, sitting down. You you telling that story. And, and uh, just for the audience, uh, uh, Dr. Bonnie Goldstein is a medical is a, a pediatrician who specializes in. Uh, cannabis and and with uh, with children in the U.S. So I just wanted to point out because you mentioned Bonnie's name, uh, who we both know really well. It was uh, you mentioned something in terms of power, and this is the one thing that I think is really frustrating for people because you being a a doctor, uh, people they want your you know your degree, and you have that power to open doors and have that conversation, but. The general population, because, you know, I deal with people who need cannabis for whatever conditions they have. They don't have the same power because they're not a medical professional. I looked at it as serious. Oh, you know, it's it's cannabis. It's, uh, you know, it's a Schedule 1 in, in the U.S. and all that other stuff. But having advocates like you. I think is extremely extremely helpful for people to understand that they have somebody that can advocate for them, and it's a really important role uh, that you put yourself into. Not only you know helping uh, patients as as you do, but also being an advocate that people will listen to and being public about that. So we need to encourage more healthcare professionals to do the same thing, to join and and be that advocate for their patients, uh, even, even if it's something that is, uh, you, you know, it doesn't have to be epilepsy, it doesn't have to be uh, cancer. But what about, you know, for if people are consuming cannabis to help them sleep, you know, not getting good quality sleep can create all kinds of uh, challenges? Why does it have to be a specific disease? So, you know, having that advocacy is, is really, really important. Uh, the other thing that I, w- I wanted to ask you is about, you know, being in Canada, uh, cost, like we we're just talking about, you know, paying X amount, whatever it was in Canadian dollars. Uh, but is there a plan or are there organization or something? Because people need to be on this medicine ongoing basis. We have insurance that covers, you know, medication that goes to the FDA and that's approved. We only have one uh, for seizures, which is Epidiolex. But is there a plan or how, how does, how do you mitigate cost or, or maybe no? Uh, for some of these families. that's You
2: know what? I mean, as a physician mom with a child that is on cannabis, I realized that at a very early stage, way back when I first started seeing kids, because at that time too, the costs were, were huge. So- you know, at that time, uh, we were just going into legalization, and so we we're having all this new recreational uh, supply. Now, in Canada, you actually have to be on the medical, which means you need a physician to give you the authorization for the medical. Um, the medical is more controlled; the products are more or less variable, um, and they have to have a ton of licenses to even uh, sell them. So. Um, that's sort of the difference. But early on, I started cold calling companies, actually. And so I would escalate my calls. So there was one company, um, there's about 800 companies in Canada, but there's some big ones. So Spectrum Therapeutics was one of them at the early stage, them and CanTrust. And, you know, they were coming out and soliciting uh, uh, positions at different clinics. And I started just asking them, I said, look, I have these kids, if they start on it, it is not fair to deny a child cannabis just because they can't afford it. And I started seeing that families couldn't afford it. And they'd come in and we'd talk about it. I'd be ready to start it with them. And then the cost was prohibitive. So I would just phone I and I'd say, I have a child with epilepsy. This is their last chance. Can you please discount the product? And so Um, That led to um, Spectrum being the first company uh, to give 20% off. And then a lot of the rest of the industry over the years just kind of started doing the same. Um, But in the last few years, I've been able to connect with not only them, but um, Tilray, Astora, like lots of the other companies. And they uh, are becoming way more competitive and they've... um, even just a couple weeks ago, another one has committed to 50% off for every child in Canada. Um, you know, so those types of things are what I've done. I've written letters to insurance companies. Um, I've tried to really um, just find any way for kids to be covered.
1: Well, you're a badass. There's not, not a lot of people that will take the time to do that. But it, it's it's so important. And I, I, I really want to emphasize this because when people need cannabis as their medicine, it's expensive. And actually, one of the reasons why we even started our company, because we started doing research on it takes four to seven times to find what formulation works for you, and if somebody has like an adverse effect uh, event right in the beginning of their journey, they may be hesitant to try again. So you know having that that experience is important, and now it'll save you money because you don't have to go through the four or seven times, but still when you found what works for you and the average cost of like cannabis tincture is somewhere around $60 US. Maybe it's more, I don't know. I'm just uh, kind of guessing on a number. Now you have to do this sometimes uh, over time, more and more and more. And there's, uh, you, you know, kids build, a, people build a tolerance to it too. So you have to increase dosage. So now you're starting with one drop. Now you're going through a full dropper and it, it does become cost prohibitive. And I think until, you know, people realize either the companies themselves, the MSOs uh, or the bigger companies, they have to have programs in place for hardship or we got to start getting this uh, covered. Even if it's not, a, uh, you know, an FDA-approved drug like Epidiolex, maybe there's uh, programs in place that can help people uh, on the government side as well. So I, I'm glad you brought that up because it's a huge, huge obstacle for people. And I talk to people all the time uh, about, you know, and they're saying it's it's cost-prohibitive. Not mm-hmm. everybody can you know, can afford to be on this uh, regular protocol. I uh, wanted to ask you one question. You're talking about CBD, uh, but... You know, which is which is non euphoric, I guess, uh, version of uh, phytocannabinoids. What about THC? What are your thoughts on that? And there's a tremendous amount of controversy. Obviously, you know, we talk a, a lot about uh, THC in kids, but there's so much controversy. You bring that up to people, and people are like, "Oh, uh, you know, I don't want my kid to be stoned." Do, do you run into some of those obstacles, and how do you overcome
2: uh, that? Absolutely. Actually, the two questions that I always get asked are, do kids smoke it? And do they get high? And I say no. <laughs> um, so, you know, that just goes to show how much education we need, we still have to do. But um, in terms of THC, so Canada actually has not put in legislation where a THC has to be removed, uh, where I, I understand in, in the US, you have a lot of products that don't have any THC in it. So, um, families are always concerned about that, but I always say, no, that's fine because we actually know that THC plays a role too. And, um, you know, a lot of times, uh, the amount of THC, although it's low, it adds up as you're dosing the children higher. So these kids, for example, are on what, 100 to 300 milligrams of CBD. And if you have a one in 20, um, so five milligrams per hundred ML or a milligrams, um, that ends up, adding up. Right. Um, so I definitely know that the full spectrum products that include other cannabinoids, terpenes, THC work way better than, um, the ones that don't, um, we've, we've shown that in just anecdotally, but I know it's in the research now too. <laughs> um, oh, yeah,
1: hundred percent agree with you. Uh, definitely. And then obviously we need to do more research and all that stuff. And, uh, but we're getting there, uh, for sure. Um, What are some of the biggest obstacles you have to deal with uh, these days in in terms of, you know, getting uh, getting the medicine to the kids and then expanding the practice and, and being that advocate who you are?
2: I think there's still a lot of education to be done to other healthcare providers. Um, I recently did a talk for the family medicine conference here. Um, I always make myself available. Most of the things I do are for free, (laughs) you know, because I'm all about education and advocacy. And if that means I go and and do a talk here or there, I do it Um, because I was given 15 minutes to talk at this family doctor conference. And I thought, what on earth can I say in these 15 minutes, you know, because I still get a lot of hate from my colleagues, you know, a lot of people that, um, you know, I run a consult based practice. So physician people, and I see adults as well. So people will go to their doctor, ask for consult, and then I will help their doctor with the cannabis uh, portion of their, their uh, medication. So, um, you know, at this family doctor conference, I thought, you know, these family docs need to understand that there's a role for this, right? They don't have to do it. They don't, they don't even have to touch it. They can consult me and I will help them, you know? So I basically gave three types of patients, you know, your mom with fibromyalgia, your, your grandpa that's dying of, of some sort of cancer and your child with autism, right? Everybody's got those, you know, and you've exhausted opioids, you've exhausted everything, right? Right what if you had another tool? What if cannabis is another tool that you're not using? You know, you don't have to commit to it long-term, right? I will see your patient. I will give them a three three to six-month trial, as it were, you know, and we'll see. We'll know by the end. Does it work? Does it not? You know, and your patient will be happy. So I've started to really try to educate other physicians because I feel like that's still a huge barrier, um you know to to people getting care and i've also noticed even from my own experience that once your child is on cannabis they're almost written off by a lot of healthcare professionals i hear it over and over again and it makes me so angry i actually just had a conversation with this with my own neurologist who's great but just saying she wanted to refer us to another um Uh, province uh, to see another uh, an epileptologist just to try to track some things that nicholas is going through and i said to her i said i will not see another doctor unless they are pro-cannabis i said because i am tired of talking to doctors who the minute you say cannabis they pretty much push you off their slate they want nothing to do with you and your whole care is affected only because you want to put you want to keep your child on cannabis
1: yeah it's 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 just silly. And, and you know, the other thing that – I'm glad you did that and you brought up those examples, but it's unfortunate that we have to talk about cannabis as a last resort. Like, you've exhausted everything. Now you go to cannabis. Maybe maybe not uh, go to cannabis as last and avoid opioids uh, to begin with. Maybe that's uh, an option, but uh, hopefully we'll get there at some point. I, I know Germany in their program uh, for their, – their medical program – they actually have to try something else that didn't work. So it's one type of uh, a protocol that wasn't effective. Now they can try uh, cannabis. So maybe that's a model that we can start looking at uh, also, or maybe just use cannabis as one of the other modalities. Here's a choice for you. Uh, I wanted to ask you one more question about, uh, you know, the, the way you, you practice or just in general. Is there, or do you look at, Drug interactions as well, because some of these kids, you know, take other medications. So drug to drug, you know, obviously we have that as part of what we do in our tests, but drug interactions, because there are, you know, inducers and inhibitors of different medications when you consume phytocannabinoids. And also dosing, because we've always been taught the whole thing of low and slow in the green book, milligram per kilogram weight. But, you know, looking at metabolic function, it doesn't make any sense, It's funny because I tell this story a lot because um, my business partner, Eric, who uh, you met, he's a physically larger guy than me, but if he and I consume the same amount of uh, cytokinella THC will have completely different experiences because he's a slow metabolizer and I'm a normal metabolizer. So 25 milligrams for me is okay. But for him, he's like off for two days and (laughs) has to recover from that. So, uh, yeah, so I want to ask you those, the the drug interaction and sort of dosing question, how do you go uh, about approaching that, those
2: things? absolutely actually way back when i first started seeing kids in 2017 i pulled every paper i could find there was actually one on drug interactions i don't have it on me um, and then all the the stuff from israel and so when you're talking about drug interactions i learned everything i could about the p450 pathway and all the potential interactions and we started looking for them and i i mean even with clobazam but what i uh, what i noticed a lot with the papers from israel was that the kids on clobazam actually did better it wasn't it wasn't that you shouldn't use it it was that you just needed to be careful cuz the clopidogrel levels can can go high but actually the two together actually made Um, So kids with epilepsy on clobazam actually did better on cannabis than kids that were not on clobazam. So that was one of the ones that we started with, because at that time I was just seeing kids with epilepsy. Um, As we expanded and I saw adults, you know, you go into all of the blood thinners and you go into other antiepileptics and tons of other like chemo agents, things like that. Now I work in every field with every age. And so actually I'm not just, I have a huge kids practice, but You know, I'm always helping other doctors navigate that for their patients. Um, And then in terms of genetics, um, you know, I have seen that all the kids metabolize it differently. I've been seeing that from day one. I have spoken to you a few times about the fact that I really, really think not only in cannabis medicine, but in general medicine, we should be looking at metabolism, right? Why do we just give everyone the same dose, right? Um, for kids, I do dose per weight, which is kind of what I got from the early Israel papers. And then it ended up being what people kind of came out with later. But that's what I was doing all along. I did it did it based on the papers, but I also did it so that I could speak the same language as the pediatricians. Because I found that when I wrote my consult letters back to the pediatricians and said that I was dosing on a milligram per weight basis, all of a sudden it started making sense. I wasn't just throwing cannabis at them, right? Um, so it really helped.
1: Yeah, well, you're you're a pretty big uh, advocate for different things, and you uh, uh, you go after things that you want. So maybe that's something we can start making as a as a standard practice at the very least. Look at people's metabolic function before you anything across the board before you make a recommendation for any type of uh, drug or, or medicine. Um, okay, so. Last question before I get into my final series of questions I ask all the guests, what are your personal goals like what do you, what would you like to or achieve in the next uh, several years with the you know the project you're working on, your your practice? what would be some of your personal goals?
2: I think I've thought a lot about that and I don't have anything specific, but an overall goal of I want my child, and of course that means other kids, I want my child to move around just like you and me using his cannabis. So that means I want my child to be at home, at school, in the hospital, seamlessly being able to use his cannabis as medicine. I've recently kind of expanded that thinking I want my child to go to Disneyland right? Right now, my child can't go to the US because my child's on cannabis and I can't go across. I could do some manipulations or whatever, but legally, I cannot take my child to Disneyland. Um, you know, and I, that, that thought has been going through my mind, right? What child can't go to Disneyland? A Canadian child on cannabis cannot go to Disneyland, <laughs> right? Or Disney World. Yeah. Like, what's wrong with that, right? I, kids need to be able to move around the world And travel. These families can't travel. When they commit to cannabis uh, because their child's doing well on it for cancer or epilepsy, you know, they're already like strapped. They can hardly do anything. They're strapped financially. They're strapped, you know, socially. They're in this little bubble. They can't do much, you know, but now they can't travel to Disneyland. You know, it's it's a huge problem. So all of my everything I do focuses on that one goal of these kids being treated like any other kid. And just because they're on cannabis doesn't mean that they're treated anywhere, any other way. Um, So that's sort of how I decide what I'm, what I will do and what I I won't do.
1: I I love that. And and the stigma is not just for kids. It's across the board. I mean, people that are consuming cannabis as their medicine, I deal with all day long. They they definitely are looked at and you still have to whisper it. And I'm in California. I'm like, it's not like that anymore. But it still is i know people who are in the movie business now and they're and they have a condition they, they actually need cannabis and they have to they have to keep on the on the on the dl basically so it's it's a really really good way to be able to uh, advocate for that so we're mm-hmm. we're here supporting exactly what you would do.
2: Sometimes when you put it in specific words like canadian children cannot go to disney world Yeah like it gets people's attention because it's so true and that's so wrong. Right. So sometimes I think we, we should just, call
1: Disney. I think we let, should let's call Disney and, and tell them let, let's, you say, Hey, you're missing all these kids that are coming from Canada that are going to, you know, in the happiest place on earth and they can't visit. Is there anything you guys can do?
2: Absolutely. Yeah, Give a
1: call to Biden.
2: Absolutely. <laughs> you know, I mean, Tracy Ryan was just talking to Biden like last month.
1: I know. Yeah. I know. You know, Why and she mentioned it to him.
2: And what, what, what's really neat is that these people actually care. They really do. It's these policies that are standing in the way, but the way to to change policy is to start speaking this language and to start really putting it down to where it matters. Right. I have kids with cancer who just can't travel. Right. Like I can get them to a European country. You try to get them to the States. Absolutely not. (laughs) You know? So Yeah
1: crazy it's crazy but it's a definitely definitely good way to uh make people visualize and hit them over the head with it can't travel can't go to disneyland okay you ready yes please describe your first experience with cannabis
2: (laughs) oh man (laughs) this was before my son needed it um I have a family member that makes rather good cookies. And me and one of my colleagues uh were out with my family and you know she made these cookies and we thought how bad can they be? Like they're just cookies. And so me and well me and my and my colleague we both had half a cookie. My brothers thank goodness they were there. They're like we're just going to watch you. We're just going to make sure you're okay. We're like we're fine. <laughs> Anyways, I don't even know when But you know, I I guess we laughed a lot. We thought it wasn't affecting us at all, so we decided we just each have a whole cookie. (laughs) So the next day, yeah, we heard a lot of stories and that, and so that was my first experience, and and that was actually an experience where I had all these bodily sensations I've never had before. (laughs) (laughs) And I was at the point where I was like, oh my gosh, when is this going to stop? And actually fast forward, probably a year later, I was working in emergency and some guy came in and he was like, I'm having electrical shocks through my body. And his (laughs) wife is with him. He's like, I ordered these cannabis chocolates for my wife for her endometriosis. And I thought I would be nice and try it first. And I looked at him and then I went, my head went back to my first experience with cannabis. (laughs) And I said, you know what, you're going to be totally fine. I'm just going to give you some IV fluid. We just need it to wear off, um, you know, and you're going to be totally fine.
1: Uh, That's so funny. I mean, I hear, I hear the edible experience at least once a day of different people. It's just a funny thing. And it, and it's not for some people because you know, they can trigger a psychotic episode for certain people who are predisposed to that. And We've had that probably 10 people in the last 10 years uh, that had that, but it, it does happen to certain people. So,
2: Well, I do uh, try a lot of different types of cannabis now because I actually found that that experience really helped me understand my patients. So now, you know, I what I tell my patients, I've probably personally experienced. So
1: that's the best way to do it. Exactly. I,
2: yeah.
1: I do too. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I'm a big music guy, uh, you know, obviously. Um, do you uh, remember what the very first concert you went to?
2: I don't remember For- growing up. Growing up, like, I wasn't really able to go to those things. But I do remember I did go to Coldplay when they were here, way back when I was in my early 20s. And I really enjoyed that. So, yeah.
1: Uh, what about uh like an album that you purchased or anything was there do you remember like the very first album that you bought?
2: Yes, I bought it um, my mom was very um, very religious at the time and so buying anything was really difficult um, when it came to you know secular music as it were yes. so it was spin yes. doctors actually
1: Little miss can't be wrong yeah. <laughs> I have a really funny Spin Doctor story. So I went to this concert and Spin Doctors opened up for Metallica. It's a really odd crowd because you had the Spin Doctor crowd who were all, you know, whatever little hipster kind of vibe, you know, uh, playing with their hacky sack. And then Metallica came out and just blew the roof off. And all these kids that were up front with their hacky sacks and everything else. But <laughs> all the way in the back right when the Metallica came out. So it was a, I think that was the early 90s, maybe.
2: Yeah, anyway. definitely.
1: Is there anything that you're listening to these days that that's good that you would like to recommend?
2: Um, you know, I have a 15-year-old, so I don't usually get a music choice. <laughs> It's a mixture of everything from (laughs) pop culture to country to whatever the music of the day is. Actually, there's a lot of 90s music that's coming back. And so I'm always happy to hear something that, you know, is back from when I was a teenager. I I, I tell (laughs) you on that. (laughs) My daughter's like, have you heard this song? I'm like, that's old.
1: (laughs) You know, it's TikTok. It brings them back. I do that with my daughter, too. And she's like, she's listening to this song. I'm like. You know, this is from like 20 years ago or more like, oh, it's not new. No, it's yeah. so definitely I like I like that that stuff's coming back. Uh, OK, what has cannabis meant in your life?
2: Um, you know what? Cannabis saved my life and my son's. It really did. Um, I went through a pretty terrible divorce, um, you know, I had a lot of PTSD uh, from not only my son's experience but from personal experience, and tried a lot of different things. Um, I had to sort of raise a medically fragile child, and you know that was my twins were four, and my uh, daughter was eight or nine. Um, you know, and when I got involved with cannabis um, for my son. I never thought it would be anything for me, but um, I started working with Chris Booner and with that group. And because um, I flew out to BC and learned all about it, because I didn't understand why my son was responding to Charlotte's Web, but would start seizing on any isolate here. I didn't even know the difference back then. Um, and so they really took me under their wing. And, and at that time, you know, I, I started trying different things and and I found that I was able to cope and I was able to really. It helped better than any other medication. Um, You know, I had tried benzos, I tried like different types of antidepressants, I tried, um, you know, psychotherapy, tried hypnotherapy, everything because I had such a traumatic marriage and divorce, um, you know, and so it it truly saved my life Um, and it saved my son. So to me, cannabis is everything. Yeah,
1: that's beautiful. I love that. Okay, bonus question. Please describe what your room looked like
2: growing up. My room, <laughs> um, it's <was> pretty boring. <laughs> I had a daybed. I had, I had like your record player. Um, I had one of those old computers. Uh, I think I don't know how my parents got it with the dot matrix printer. Um, you know, with the old computer games and that. <laughs> but i don't remember see i grew up in the 90s and the 80s where we didn't really have computer or any electronics so i grew up outside like i was running around the neighborhood and and hanging out with my friends
1: but any any posters on the walls or like anything that's distinctive like that shows or are you interested in the uh, like you know a certain music or was it like uh you know here's the teen heartthrob the uh, you know just trying to I have
2: to say the it. the one that I like I was super young no you have to remember I was like 12, 13. Macaulay Culkin. There's no there's no <laughs> there's
1: no judgment here. Macaulay Culkin. Macaulay Culkin
2: was the thing Home Alone. back there. Yeah, <laughs> Home Alone had just come out, you know. Um that was one poster I had up in my room, definitely. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Um, all right, Jen. Where can people contact you? Clinic, movie, where can they get? get a hold of you or
2: yeah absolutely um i have a brand new website it's www.cannabisdoc.ca and that's cannabis doc like doctor um and on that website i'm i've got some blogs i've also got the trailer to the anything can happen documentary um you can message me through the site and learn all about my story um, and see where I practice. Um, and in the future will be a lot of other things on there as well.
1: Well, I'm really glad we got to do this. Thank you so much. I had so much fun and, uh, your, your, your story needs to be heard over and over and over. So, uh, we'll get this out and to many people, but, uh, I'm, I'm really appreciative of, not only you being on, but all the work that you do. So it's, it's great and really helping a lot of people. Well,
2: thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows.
0: Hi, my name's Kate, and I'm your host of the Pot Moms podcast. I started the Pop Moms podcast, well, because I wanted to end the stigma against using cannabis, specifically with moms, but also anyone who chooses to consume. I strive for a balance of humor and education, along with some pretty rad guests, to help combat social biases that come with consuming cannabis. Kids are hard. Join me for regular podcast episodes packed with parenting hacks, real life stories, and of course, my favorite cannabis products. The days are long, but the years are short. So roll another J and take a deep breath. Keep blazing and stay amazing.